It's a joy to be with you again this morning in a time of worship in the season of Lent uh, when we learn what it means to be disciples. Uh, Jesus sets out this course of discipleship and the scriptures through Lent help us unpack uh, that journey of discipleship, uh, the way of Jesus that we might follow in that way, knowing that there is a cross in the way. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we have gathered here this morning as brothers and sisters in the body of your Son. We give you thanks for each other and the encouragement we receive, the challenge we receive in learning to love and serve you. Bless us in our reflections this morning that our steps as your disciples might be bolder and more faithful. In the spirit of your Son we pray, amen. The church in its wisdom set out several years ago to define our mission, our work together, as making disciples for the transformation of the world. And ever since, we've been trying to figure out, what does it mean to make disciples? Uh, You'd think that was obvious. Jesus says it in the scriptures, go now and make disciples of all nations. Uh, And we keep wrestling with what that looks like. We have several models from our own history and the life of the church to draw from. Uh, which commend themselves to us and which we, with which we wrestle. Uh, one of those is the, the model we de- uh, think about as the, the model of, of church moving out into the world and, and gathering disciples. When, uh, when we were living in Ventura, our youngest daughter went to Junipero Serra Elementary School. And of course, you know, California, if you go to school, you have to study the missions, right? And we discovered some very disturbing things about Junipero Serra. Uh, His way of making disciples was through torture, uh, conscription, uh, brutally forcing them to to encourage them to be baptized. Uh, What's interesting, in in Long Beach, where I now live, they refer to the street after his name as Juanapero. I, I don't know where people get these pronunciations, but... Junipero reflects a significant model of disciple-making in the history of the church. It's the imperial model, the empire. One doesn't really actually make so much disciples and followers of Jesus as one does make subjects of the empire. That was the the routine. Uh, And so the cross of Jesus, the cross in the way, becomes a sword. A second model, which has uh, become much more uh, comfortable, uh, particularly in modern-day America, is the model that says, if you follow Jesus, you will experience success. You will experience success. You will do well. You will be rewarded for following. You'll be better off if you follow Jesus. Uh, in this case, the cross becomes a plus sign. Uh, we know this as the uh, uh, prosperity gospel. Right? You believe strong enough and God will reward you with earthly rewards. The, a third model that our history gives us is one that's probably more comfortable in our, our you know, mainline Protestant tradition. And that is the model of being better. If you follow Jesus, you will be a better person. This is the moral model. Uh, we'll simply be a, a, a better version ourselves if we follow Jesus. In this case, the cross becomes a pendant. 
I, I'm, I'm now a better person and I wear my cross to demonstrate that I'm a better person. I'm looking back and seeing the, the choir raying crosses on their robes. And I'm feeling, oops. <laughs> Maybe I should have gone someplace other than pendant, but... Those models are part of our history, but none of them seem to me adequate to the way of discipleship that Jesus lines out for us. None of them fit the bold challenge to turn the conventional wisdom upside down. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is depicted as taking the alternate route, taking a different turn. Even beginning his call of the disciples, he goes not to the, the centers and the synagogues, he goes to fishermen along a sea. He goes amongst people that are not center. He goes to the periphery and to the margins, going against conventional wisdom. This morning's scripture comes from Luke's Sermon on the Plain. It is very parallel to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, but Luke has it on, on the plane, and his writing is much more terse. Luke makes those who suffer for righteousness, he makes it kind of a noble thing. I mean, Matthew does. In Luke, it's simply those who suffer, right? Those who are poor, those who hunger. This goes against conventional wisdom. In this setting, Luke explores the values of the way of Jesus. Luke explores what are the, the primary commitments and attitudes towards others that are the way of Jesus. And he lines them out in opposition to what we've always heard. The people to be admired, the blessed, are those who don't hunger, who have plenty, who are filled. The blessed are those who are well. The blessed are those who are bold, not the meek. And yet in Luke, he contrasts those who are blessed who are hungry, who are thirsty, who, are, who suffer and are persecuted, and says, woe to those who are filled now, contrasting the way of Jesus with the conventional wisdom of our time. And in this passage we read this morning, Jesus takes those bold attitudes and values and says, if you don't get it yet, let me tell you what this looks like in action. Love your enemies. Share your cloaks, your second cloak with those who take your first. It is an action of compassion and love that goes strikingly against the conventional wisdom. When you read these passages about turning the other cheek, uh, lending and don't, with no expectation of return, uh, you know, walking the second mile. Does that make you uncomfortable? Does it make, come on, put your hand, if you're really, you know, if you're honest. Be, okay, if you're not uncomfortable with that, you're not listening. <laughs> we hear this passage so frequently that it kind of just washes over on. It doesn't make me uncomfortable. Jesus said it in order to make those who would follow him uncomfortable. That's the whole purpose of him saying it, is to disquiet us. To help us have to think through, well, that doesn't fit with what I've always been taught, right? Love your, love, your, love your family is hard enough sometimes, right? Much less loving your enemy. And yet Jesus is saying, love those who persecute you. Love those who are your enemies. Love those who uh, steal from you. 
And there is a, a sense which says, it's, what good is it to love people who, that love you? What good is it to love when you expect a, re, a reward, a return, an exchange of love? I always think it's funny at Christmas time when we say, we're going to exchange gifts. If you exchange gifts, it's simply a bartering system. There is no gift involved, right? It's like, I give you this, you give me that. Well, where's, what's, what's giving about that? I expect one in return. I'm getting something in return. It's just an exchange of stuff. Jesus says that isn't what God's looking for. That isn't the way to know God and God's fullest and God's depth. This loving your enemy stuff is really hard work. And I've wondered, who, who do we understand as our enemies? Who are our enemies? We don't have natural enemies anymore. Anybody been accosted by a lion or a tiger recently? No, I mean, a, a butterfly may dive bomb you uh, right now. But we don't have natural enemies. We really don't even have tribal enemies. Uh, that used to be a, a real thing. You know, a tribal enemies, another village that was our arch enemy. Uh, I'm, I doubt many of us have uh, are part of the uh, Montagues or Capulets, uh, right? We don't have a family that's, you know, vying against us. Uh, any Hatfields or McCoys out there? Not, not that your name isn't McCoy, but you have a rivalry. See, that's not a, our norm. So who is, who is the enemy that Jesus is talking about? It's clear in his day who the enemies are. They live in oppressive society. Certainly the Romans are oppressors. It's even clearer in the Gospel of uh, Matthew when he says, uh, if someone asks you to walk the first mile, if a soldier asks you to walk the first mile, walk the second, it's clear who the enemy is being lifted up as. But even within Israel, there are enemies. Anyone who separates you from the temple, so a collaborator, collaborator with Rome, the ta tax collectors, would be enemies. Those who might defile us, make us unclean. The leper, uh, you know, women at the certain cycle of the time. All of that is, makes us unclean. Those were considered enemies, people to stay away from. Samaritans were the tribal conflict of Israel. And so you were to avoid hate Samaritans, which makes Jesus' use of Samaritans in parables and other places noteworthy but we don't have those kind of enemies the kind of enemies we have primarily are those that are manufactured manufactured enemies people we are told to hate people we are told to fear these are the threats lined out for us we see it over and over and over again even in our own history, we can look to how people have been identified as the enemy, as a threat. When the first African slaves were brought to the Americas, they were defined as less than human. They were a threat, particularly to poor white farmers. You don't want to be them. You want to be above them. And they are identified as the enemy. They will take your jobs. And so the animosity between white and black begins at the first stages of the Americas. Later in history, during the 1800s, many people from a specific province in China came to California, uh, partly for the gold rush, uh, to see if they could do better from a very poor province, 
And some were lured here to work on the railroad system, to build the, the rails that connected the coasts. But no sooner were those railroad ties laid and the railroad complete than those Chinese people were no longer needed. And the United States government passed the uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, Exclusion, thank you, Exclusion Act, which said for 10 years no Chinese people could immigrate from China, meaning these men whose families were still there could not have their families come and join them much less the violence uh, that was perpetrated against uh, Chinese people during that era. It was easy to identify the enemy and invite response. In World War II, we did something similar with our Japanese, but they were citizens. They were brothers and sisters. They were store owners right down the street, people we knew. And without any indication that there was any animosity moving among those people, they were incarcerated. Houses, businesses lost, taken, sold off at extremely low prices. We knew who our enemy was, we identified and we manufactured them. I recently found out that the Bracero program uh, that started in this country started actually in World War II in the 40s uh, with all of the farm men going off to war, uh, not only did Rosie the Riveter get an opportunity to rivet and create planes, uh, Jose from Mexico was invited to come and provide farm labor in the United States. But even as they were invited, plans were in place to exclude them from the possibility of citizenship, of becoming U.S. citizens, and later on they were clearly identified as the enemy who will take your job. That's continued to go through various variations until today. And certainly we've had uh, the manufacturing of enemies among immigrants, people who come and are a part of us. Uh, we see this uh, what, in what just happened in New Zealand uh, with a tenant, tenant uh, taking up arms, taking 49 lives in a mosque uh, of people he, he blamed, he saw as enemy. He feared because they were the threat. That continues to unfold in our life together as we manufacture and identify those people of whom we are afraid. And our world continues to vilify those people. It's interesting that we seldom look to the people who create those issues in the first place, who bring over or who buy or purchase or have labor. Uh, we tend to blame the people who come, not the people who bring them. This is a challenge for us in the life of the church. What does it look like to love our enemies? How do we look across the aisle and see somebody that's a wounded soul like we are? I was recently visiting with, uh, on the board of ministry with a young man who wants to be a clergy within our annual conference. He's going through the steps. Uh, sometimes I wonder why would they choose now to be part of the United Methodist Church with all that we're going through. That has to be a statement of faith in and of, of itself. He reflected on some conversations uh, that he had with Jim Lawson, who was a significant player in the civil rights movement in the country, who really framed out and educated people about a nonviolent way of making change happen. And the young man said, I asked Dr. Lawson, how, how do you keep you know, doing that when these people vilify you and threaten you? And he said, every time I look at somebody who is 
whose heart is broken by racism. Every time I look at somebody who is, is, practices bigotry uh, and persecution, I realize that they have a wounded soul. That the only way they can act that way is if their soul is wounded. And if their soul is wounded, I know mine is, and we have a common foundation. And so my, my work realizes that violence will never heal a wounded soul. Only love can heal a wounded soul. That is the way of Jesus' soul-mending path. I looked for places where I could see that happening. Uh, a young clergy friend of mine, a female, has a really wonderful ministry here in Southern California, and uh, she put on her Facebook um, just like most millennials, they divulge everything on Facebook. It's like sometimes I'm uncomfortable reading stuff on Facebook, you know, and like, oh, I didn't need to know that. But she shared that she had been invited to the National uh, Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And as you may imagine, that has been politicized, and I, I kind of got judgy, you know, in the, in, the, in the passage this morning, it says, do not judge one another. Well, I, I failed. I kind of got judgy and say, oh, you're playing in the, the political hands and you're just, you know, that's not a good, good idea to be there. You'll be seen as, you know, a, a supporter of something you're not a supporter of. And uh, she wrote in her article, the more I read on, um, how she had gone, how she had experienced and been able to witness to her faith of a very inclusive church. Uh, her church is made of lots of millennials um, of various uh, orientations and uh, identification, gender identifications. She was able to witness to that in this very diverse crowd and met people, she said, that with whom I could share uh, break bread and understanding and expand the, the circle of compassion uh, and be a, a leaven in the bread for bringing an alternative witness that might not have been there. And to say, well, that's, that's loving the, the wounded enemy, isn't it? Uh, loving the person who doesn't agree with you by simply being present at table with them. Our annual conference used to look like general conference did, kind of battering each other uh, as we discussed uh, particularly uh, issues related to the LGBTQ community. Uh, we would have flat floor fights on whether a resolution was right or wrong, and people would say the most god-awful things. You remember, it was just they would you know slander each other and and describe horrible uh, depictions of what that lifestyle looked like, and it was it was everybody would leave bleeding from you know uh, our annual conference, and at some point uh, a wise soul thought, you know, this isn't how the community communicates with each other in a healthy way. And so we began, began to practice uh, holy conferencing, a Wesleyan model, of coming together and sharing our hearts, not in a legislative win-lose situation, but simply around the table together to begin to listen to one another, one another's stories, perspectives, uh, without judging or, or throwing away, but truly listening to one another. And uh, though we didn't, we'll deal with legislation later, we learned a way of being at the table with one another that saw each other as colleagues and fellow disciples with differing perspectives. It would be hopeful if the larger church could have adopted that approach to one another. Another place where I have seen loving your enemies, uh, the passage says if somebody steals your cloak, let them have your shirt also, or vice versa. 
When I was working with the uh, uh, CCEJ uh, in Long Beach, they developed a program, it was an uh, interfaith uh, gathering, they developed a program of uh, restorative justice for high, uh, young people, uh, people who were uh, not adults yet, uh, who had uh, broken a law. And they had worked out a deal with the city prosecutor and the police department that if a student was willing to, a young person was willing to go through the restorative justice program, they would hold in abeyance that crime going on their record. And the program brought together the perpetrator uh, and those who had been uh, uh, harmed in the process, and they would sit down at the table with one another, and the people who had been harmed would share what that action of this young person had meant to them. And the young person had an opportunity to apologize, to recognize what they did, and they would seek some way to restore what had been broken. A uh, house had been broken into, robbed, ransacked, and uh, it made very difficult for a handicapped person at home in one instance. So that person would come over and work in the home for that next year to be with that family, to mend that broken relationship. This is loving our neighbor restoring justice, not punishing, not being punitive, not adding one more pit person to the penal justice system, but helping mend the community in which we live. For me, this is loving the enemy. This is loving the person who has uh, stolen our shirt and finding a way towards reconciliation. The challenge we face is to find those ways in which we learn to see each other as whole human beings, as brothers and sisters, as members of a community, and not let anyone define them as enemy. I remember uh, Dr. King had a great statement I want to share and, and close with you this morning. Uh, I, I, think, I think Dr. King got Jesus. You know, I think he, he, he got it. He writes this in his uh, work on uh, loving your enemy. He says, To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall love you still. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and in our victory will be a double victory. May we discover Christ's pathway of the double victory, of not making people enemies, but discovering those who, like us, are wounded souls, and discover the power of love to transform. Amen.